Uh, good morning to you all. Thank you for praying for my nation and uh, thank you for welcoming us back to the pulpit. It's always nice when you're welcomed back. We live in a very religious world. We're all trying in our various ways to please our God or our gods, to worship the divine, to get in touch with the supernatural. But this morning I want to explain to you the secret of godliness. I want to explain to you what Christians confess about the mystery of godliness. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, in the church Bibles here, it's page 852. Page 852. 1 Timothy and chapter 3. I'm not using a church Bible and I'm finding it somewhere here. Someone's stolen it out of my Bible. Now here we are. If you can't find it in your Bible, get a different Bible. It's there, 1 Timothy 3. And I'm really concentrating on one verse. It's in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand this verse that you have inspired by your servant Paul, that we might understand this great mystery of godliness, that this understanding may control our lives as we live in the secret of this godliness that you have revealed to us this day. And we ask for your help. Help me as I speak, help us as we listen, help us in our hearts and our minds to understand and to respond appropriately. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start off in the very best way to do so by looking at the contest and asking ourselves why the letter was written, this letter from Paul to Timothy. And you see the answer to that question in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul was expecting to delay joining Timothy. And so he gives these written instructions to him, which wouldn't be necessary if he was there to talk to him face to face. His hope is that he will come soon, but... Just in case he's delayed, which delay he's expecting to do, here are Timothy's instructions. They're written to Timothy, his colleague and protege, his true son in the gospel as he describes him, but it's a semi-public letter. It's commending Timothy to those who read it and he's instructing Timothy as to act on the apostle's behalf while he waits for him to come. In particular, he was instructing Timothy how somebody 
ought to behave or conduct themselves in God's household. These instructions about how to behave in church are not the instructions that you give to a child, sit still, face the front, don't eat your lollies, don't fight with your sister, nor is it about how to run the church meeting that you're coming to in a couple of weeks. It's about being in God's household or God's family. But being in God's household or as, as in any family has certain acceptable behaviour, certain standards, certain ways of doing things, values, requirements. A shopkeeper's household expects things of its children that are quite different to a farmer's household or a businessman's household. A New Zealand household expects things of its members that are different to an Eskimo's household or a Japanese household. I was researching a little while ago a dairy farmer's life in Australia in the early 20th century and found that each of the 11 children in this family had a job to do before they went to school. One little girl had to mix and knead the dough to the point of the second rising before going to school each morning. There aren't many Australian girls who mix knead any dough, let alone before they go to school today. That's how they lived in that household then. How do you live in God's household? What, what is the character of life of God's household? And here we have Paul writing to Timothy and through him to the church about how an individual, one, ought to behave as members of God's household. For it isn't just any household we're talking about here or any particular national culture that we may have. This is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Truth is its business. Not farming, not banking, nor retail, but truth is the business of this family. It's based in the knowledge of the truth. For Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And God desires, he says in chapter 2 there, all to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why false teaching, erroneous teaching, false prophets, deceitful teachers, myths and teachings and demons are destructive of the church, are antithetical to the very nature of the church, are so important to stop. A good illustration of it is on the back of your outline. Come along, I'm sorry not to be here at the meeting. The danger of the prosperity gospel, which is causing great damage to the church of the living God and people who would join in with it. For if you can't find the truth in church, where will you find it? If you don't find the truth in church, why do you belong to it? Our business, God's business, is the business of truth. And so he bursts forth in the truth, the great mystery of godliness upon which the church is built, which is foundational to the confession of the church. But before we look at it, we need to clear up confusion over two words. Firstly, the word mystery, then the word godliness. The word mystery is actually a secret. That is, the Greek word, mysterion, gets 
transliterated it, it became the background to the English word via Latin, mystery. And so our translators translate the Greek word with the word in English that looks like it, namely mystery, from which our English word has been derived. But the Greek word actually meant secret. And secret is slightly different to mystery. For a mystery is something that is strange, something that is mystical, inexplicable, obscure, puzzling, something beyond human reasoning or understanding. But a secret, well, no, a secret is just something that you don't know. And then when they tell you, you do know. <laughs> it's not mysterious. It just is something that's revealed to you. See, you don't know what's in my right-hand pocket here. I have a right-hand pocket. See, the hand's in there. You don't know what's in it. You could guess. My guess is you'd be wrong. But you can guess. What do you think is in it? Have a go. Keys, phone, money, nothing. Okay, a very sceptical crowd. No, 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 no. Little preacher's jubes. Uh, just be very, never mind, I won't explain it. <laughs> you didn't know. Hey, but now you do know. Isn't your life richer for discovering what's in my... No. <laughs> there are some secrets that most likely should be left as secrets, aren't there, right? But it's just a... It's not mysterious. It's not puzzling. It just is something you don't know until you're told. And then you do know. That is the nature of a secret. And for Paul, the great mystery, the great secret, was that the gospel was for the Gentiles, the nations, as well as the Jews. See, as a Pharisaic Jew, he expected the Messiah, the Christ, to come and save the Jews. He didn't know that the Christ came to save the nations as well as the Jews. I mean, you find it in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 2 and 3 especially. Let me read Ephesians 3, 6 for you. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They didn't know it. But then, when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead when he sent his disciples, his apostles out to the nations, when he confronted the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, then that which had been a secret for centuries was revealed, that the gospel was not limited just to the Jews, but to all nations, that the one God was the one God over all, and Jesus was the saviour of all. And so, the mystery is a secret that has been made known. Now, what is the secret that he's talking about here? But before we come to that, the second word, godliness, requires us to understand the word godliness properly. For the New Testament uses godliness slightly differently to the way that we use godliness today. See, just take a moment, talk to the person next to you, if you haven't said hello already, you should have. Always say hello to the person next to you in church, especially if it's your wife or husband. Uh, <laughs> just take a moment and just, just give a quick, what is godly? 
Just tell them what godly means. Okay, that's easy enough. Now, make it easier for you. Just, just tell each other what the word, what, what's the opposite for godly? Give, me, give each other one word that is the opposite of godly. You see, this little word that we have here, godliness, is a very important word in 1 Timothy. It occurs seven times in 1 Timothy, which is about half the references that we have in the whole New Testament. It's one of the themes of the book of 1 Timothy is godliness. It's the word which means religion. Hands up those who said religion. I can't see any hands. It's the Greek normal every word day word for religion. You could have as an alternative piety. Anybody put piety? Ah, there's one. Good, good. Glad somebody else speaks English in this crowd. Yes, okay. <laughs> See, we don't like the word religion uh, because, well, there's even a famous Christian book, wasn't there, written in the 20th century, How to Be Christian Without Being Religious. But the Greek word godliness actually is the word for religion. How come? See, for Christians, godliness nearly always is about behaviour, isn't it? Helping our neighbour would be godly. The opposite of godly, we would say, would be, well, what word did you come with? What was the opposite of godly? Ungodly. <laughs> Hands up all those who went for ungodly. Okay, yes, good. Ungodly. And so telling the truth would be godly, telling a lie would be ungodly. Now there's a truth in that usage of the word, for Christian morality is built into our spirituality, but it removes the spirituality from our morality. What we're really doing is adding an extra O to the word. We're talking about being goodly, but this is about being godly. And so we talk about goodly more than godly, whereas the word is about our devotion to God. The opposite of godly is not ungodly. Who's got a better one than ungodly? The easy one, it's godless. Oh, yeah. You see, hear the difference between godless and ungodly? Ungodly is about how I live in my morality, isn't it? Godless is I don't have any relationship with God. I've got no connection with God. Godly is about our relationship with God, which will be seen in the way we live, but it's about our relationship with God. It's about our religion, our piety, our, our connectedness with God. So what's the secret of true godliness? That's what he's writing about here. The mystery of godliness, the secret of godliness. What is the secret of godliness that we Christians confess? And the answer is the rest of the verse. 
And you'll notice it's not what we have done, but what God has done. When we think of goodliness, when we think of godliness as if it is goodliness, it's all about what we do and what we have to do. It's all about natural religion, how to get right with God by doing the good things you're supposed to do, by your behaviour, by your religious acts or your rituals or your devotions. It's like having six steps to, because we've got six sentences here. You know, the six steps to the secret of godliness. It's kind of like ten steps to lose weight, nine steps to uh, entertain the in-laws, or five, you know, eight steps to have fashion disasters to avoid, and seven steps for cleaning the kitchen, and six steps for, for, for being godly. No. The secret of godliness is not about what we have to do. It's all about what God has already done in Christ Jesus. Not about what we do, but what Christ has done for us. We don't climb our way to heaven. That's called the Tower of Babel when God sent judgment on the world. It's all about God coming down to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christmas and in Easter when we hear about God becoming man and man dying on behalf of all of us, that we then start to understand the secret of godliness. It's a secret because in our sinfulness we do not understand, we do not expect God to become man and die on our behalf and rise again. It's all about Christ's accomplishment. So this morning I'm sharing with you God's great secret of godliness, captured in these six very brief lines, six great truths, written like a creed or a hymn or a gospel summary. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. See those six lines there? We're all working on the ESV, aren't we? Good. Well, let's read them together, shall we? There's those six lines. He, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When you understand them, when they control your life, you will indeed find the godliness that God himself has provided. They are, there are no rules to keep. There are no steps to follow. There's no habits to form and there's no activities to engage in. There's no clubs to join and there's no fees to pay and there are no key performance indicators that you have to achieve. It's secret for most people because it is completely wrong to their understanding. It is the exact reverse of what they would ever imagine. It's what godliness involves. Non-Christians don't understand it because they don't understand the centrality of Christ. And Christians keep getting confused about it because Christian morality keeps getting in the way and we forget the centrality of Christ. But the secret of godliness is all about Christ, his achievements, his revelation, his results. So let's look at those things. 
The secret of godliness tells us about what he achieved. The first statement is that he was manifested in the flesh. Shockingly, God appeared in flesh because he became flesh. Christianity is not about an idea or a philosophy or about an experience. It's about a historical event. Something seen, touched, heard, witnessed. Sometimes young people ask Christians to show us God as if they would believe that if just only they could see God for themselves with their own eyes. Well, there's a couple of different answers that you can give to them. Firstly, you can say if you're in the right place at the right time, you would indeed have seen him for yourself with your own eyes. Just you turned her up 2,000 years too late. It was in Palestine in the first century. He did appear and repeatedly was seen by many witnesses. Sorry that you were born in the wrong millennium. <laughs> Secondly, you can tell them that even those who did see, seeing is not necessarily believing. For some saw and still didn't believe because they didn't know what they were seeing. They didn't understand because what was they were seeing was different to their expectations and therefore they didn't get it. They didn't grasp. Face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't know they were face to face with God. The great secret that people were not expecting is that God became man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth. So when he became man, most people didn't recognise him as God because they weren't expecting God to appear as a man. And if they were, they wouldn't know what kind of man to expect. He looked like any other man. There was nothing special about him. You notice there's no description of the physical appearance of Jesus in any of the Gospels, any of the New Testament. You don't know what he looked like. Was he tall? Was he dark? Was he short? Was he fat? Was he... I think he looked Jewish. <laughs> Whatever that look is. He did extraordinary things, but just like the prophets before him. He taught with extraordinary authority, but he was just like any other man. Those strange things happened to him at the time of his death. He died as many thousands others were died, killed in crucifixion, giving up his spirit and being buried in a grave. But God appeared in the flesh. When he was manifested in the flesh, when he rose from the dead, leaving behind an empty tomb and repeatedly appearing to his disciples up to 500 on one occasion. He wasn't a ghost or a spirit, but he was the same man who was crucified just a little while before. And he met his disciples and he sat down with them and he ate fish with them. And when doubting Thomas saw him, he he saw the, 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 the holes in the hands and in his side and his feet. And Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. So the first clue to God's great mystery is that he was manifested in the flesh. This, I may say, is the single most dangerous idea that has ever been told that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For once you grasp that and its importance and significance, nothing is ever the same again. The second statement is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is what the day of Pentecost is all about. 
It's not about speaking in tongues. That was just what started it all off. But it's about the risen Lord Jesus Christ pouring out his spirit, the spirit of God, into, the, into his people, testifying to Israel that Jesus is both the Lord and the Christ, for God made him both Lord and Christ. The climax to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the very first Christian sermon, the climax of it is that the outpouring of the Spirit shows that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit to testify him, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit vindicated his claim to be the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, turn with me, keep 1 Timothy, we'll come back to our verse. Turn back to Romans for a few moments. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. Those who've got a church Bible might call out a number for me, a page number for me. Romans chapter 1. Sorry? 804, page 804. Got that in the highest authority. My wife found it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here it is, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. And what's the gospel about? Concerning his son. And what can you tell me about his son? Well, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a summary of the gospel. He was a human descended from David and therefore to be the Christ because the son of David was to be the Christ. But he was not only the son of David, he was the son of God. And when do, where do you see him as the son of God? Why, in his resurrection, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his people. And so he is vindicated by the Spirit in the resurrection. Come back to our passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 then, verse 16, you see. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. For it's in the gospel that Christ and his victory is revealed. It's revealed both in heaven and in this world. So the third great statement that we have, seen by angels. Christianity is based in human history, but it's not only about human history. It's also about the supernatural world, the intersection both between the natural world and the supernatural world that took place in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Angels are part of that supernatural reality, whether or not we've ever seen them or whether you've ever come across one. Uh, would you know one if you saw one? I mean, you're told that people entertain in Hebrews, you're told we can entertain angels unawares. I reckon if a bloke turned up with a halo over his head and wings out his back and a dressing gown, I would be aware. <laughs> I wouldn't be unaware on this occasion. Now, angels are the spiritual messengers of God and they're never described as having wings. Uh, some of you are now thinking Isaiah 6. They're seraphim, not angels. Ah, so the angelic wings, that's ruined everything, hasn't it? Hey, church is miserable today, just taking the wings off the angels. No, no, 
they're the messengers of God, the spiritual messengers of God, and they were the ones who saw him. Angels, the New Testament teaches that the angels longed in the Old Testament to know what the prophets were talking about when the prophets told about the, the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. God, that's what the Old Testament keeps on telling. The Christ is coming and there's terrible suffering, but great glory. And the angels, they didn't know what it, the prophets were talking about. They wanted to know what the prophets were talking about. And they found out what the prophets were talking about on the day Jesus rose from the dead. For the resurrections, they were the first ones to see the resurrection. They saw it, what it was about. They were there in the empty tomb. They were, first, they were the first to bear witness to the empty tomb of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But the revelation of the secret was not restricted to the angels. For Paul, the converted Jewish Pharisee, became the apostle to the Gentiles. And the great revelation was that Jesus was preached among the nations. Our fourth great statement. See, you and I, we're the heirs of 2,000 years of a worldwide religion. But before the Lord Jesus Christ, there weren't worldwide religions. Evangelistic gospel religions didn't exist. National religions existed, but not worldwide religions existed. They were cultural held. We take it for granted now that the Messiah was not for the Jews alone, but it was the death and resurrection of the Messiah, the man of God, that religion of the chosen nation of Israel became the religion of all the nations of the world. God didn't come into the world to save Israel from the Romans, but to save sinners from death and judgment, to save people, all manner of people, like you, like me. Look back over to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's one God over all humanity. They're not different gods for different nations. There's one God for all humanity. And there's one man who is the mediator between God and all humanity. There's only one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. There's one man, there's one mediator, go-between, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the proper time. Now is the age for this message to go out to the world. And so he is proclaimed among the nations. It has been for the 2,000 years since his resurrection. And so what is Christ? That's what Christ has achieved. That's how he's been revealed. The last two lines tell us something more, the results. 
As a result of this, he's believed on in the world, our fifth great statement. For all around the world, millions and millions of people have come to trust that first century Jewish man. They've given their life to him, they've found forgiveness in him, and they've entrusted their eternity to him. Today, more people trust this man than any other person, alive or dead or risen from the grave. More people in history trust him as their Lord and Saviour than any other person who has ever lived. For all the other great leaders of all the other great religions and all the other great nations, and all, they're all dead. And they're still dead. But this man is risen from the dead and is alive now. Here was God's great plan to bring all the world to acknowledge his son, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Which then brings us to the sixth and last of our statements. He was taken up in glory. For though Jesus was crucified in worldly shame and ignominy, he rose in glory and honour. And more, he has ascended to sit at the right hand of God in all majesty and power and glory, where we now see him. For when we do see him face to face, when that day comes, either for us or for all of us, when that happens, when we see him, we join in the praises that you read in the book of Revelation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain in your body, and with your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. These will be our songs. We in Australia change prime ministers very often. We're really good at it. We churn them over. We're a, we're a nation of, of, uh, of everybody has opportunity to be prime minister. Uh, we just change them regularly enough that you can tell you in school these days to every little boy, every little girl, you too could be prime minister <laughs> for a day or two. It's just, because you see, we Australians, we don't want anybody to have power. We don't want anybody to have glory. We don't want to have anybody have honour. We don't, we don't trust anybody especially if they're an Australian. <laughs> it's a nation built out of convicts. What do you expect? Which nation, which person can you say, I want them to have all power, all glory, all honour, all majesty, forever and ever and ever? The one who died for you and rose again, he can be trusted to have all power for all glory forever and ever. He is taken up in glory, for it is right and proper. 
1 Timothy then is about how one ought to behave in God's household. It's about how one, you, me, how we ought to live in God's household, in God's church. How to live in the truth of God's family. The secret that is changing the world, this world and the world to come, the secret that introduces us to all the teaching of 1 Timothy is found in this verse. It's kind of strange, but this verse is the verse to explain 1 Timothy. Understand this verse aright and the rest of the book makes sense. You'd expect the topic verse to be up the beginning of the book, but it's in the middle of the book. It's the very hinge verse that you have in the whole book. For it introduces all the teaching of 1 Timothy about challenging false teachers in chapter 1, about the gospel being for all nations in chapter 2, about men at prayer and women in good works in chapter 2, about overseers and servants in chapter 3, about the lies and deceitful spirits of godless myths in chapter 4, about the truths of creation and salvation that Timothy is to teach and model to his hearers, to himself in chapter 4, about how we honour widows and elders and masters in chapters 5 and 6, and about what's wrong with the prosperity gospel in chapter 6, about money, its uses and abuses. All the chapters about how we live in the household in some details, but you've got to understand what the household is first. You've got to understand who's in the household first. You've got to understand what the whole religion of Christ is about first. And in the light of the gospel, the great secret of godliness of the risen Christ Jesus proclaimed and believed in the world who was vindicated by the Spirit, who was seen by the angels and is now taken up in glory. In the light of this great gospel, all our lives and decisions and actions as members of God's household should be lived out and will be seen to be different. For no longer do we live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. This is the true secret of our religion, the true mystery that people just do not get of godliness. Christianity is not about what we do, it's about what God has done. What God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension to glory. To be a Christian is to believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead? Do you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord? Then you will be saved. For you too are a member of God's family. And as a member of God's family, we'll cherish the rest of 1 Timothy as the way of life for one who's in God's family. But if you do not yet know in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and do not yet confess him as your Lord, then talk to your Christian friends about it. Talk to the pastoral team, the welcoming team, those who have got on the, 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 the name tags. Talk to us about how you too can join this ever-growing family that acknowledges Jesus Christ for it is so wonderful to know of him, he who was manifested in the flesh, he 
who was vindicated by the Spirit. He who was seen by angels. He who has been proclaimed among the nations. He who was believed on in the world. And he who has now been taken up in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for your work in him, sending him to us for our salvation. We thank you, Father, for his death for our sins and his resurrection for our justification. We thank you for the pouring out of the Spirit that so vindicated him. We thank you that he has been preached throughout the nations and even to us. We thank you that he's been believed on in all the world. And we praise you, Father, that he is now in glory with you, ruling over this universe. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for this. And we pray for ourselves that we may be people as a church of God, the church of the living God, that we may live out this truth amongst ourselves. And we pray for those amongst us this day who do not yet know Jesus as our Lord personally, that we may come to know him as the one who died and rose for us. And we pray for our family and our friends, Father, that they too may come to know Jesus. They too may come to the knowledge of the truth that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name that we make these requests. Amen.